Good morning, church. My name is Tyler, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Westview. And we just want to welcome you this morning to our service, wherever you are watching this at home or whenever you're watching this across all of our channels. This morning, uh, we want to invite you uh, into a new six-week series in the book of First John. And there's a question I want to ask this morning before we go any further. And the question is this, what should the church look like? And so why that question, you might be asking? Well, well, let me tell you why. Because I feel like the times we've spent over the last little while doing church at home has stirred up a number of questions, for me at least, about what's necessary, what's important, what defines church, and what it should look like. And I'm sure you've seen on the news a lot of different perspectives on the place of church in our current culture. Some churches have refused to do anything as they believe church only takes place within a building, and so they actually haven't even been having anything like a normal church service. Some churches continue to gather in their buildings despite warnings from local health officials. Some churches have embraced videos and live stream. Some churches ask their people simply to read the word and to pray at home. And I'm sure there are numerous other perspectives on how to do church going forward. And it's a question we're asking, too, as a staff team. We're asking, what does church look like for us going forward? Does it need to look different than before? Should we change things? Because we all know how much churches love change. Or should we just keep things the same? We all have thoughts on this, I'm sure. But I want to be clear that I'm, I'm throwing around this morning this term, Church, and I'm using these two definitions somewhat interchangeably. This is a church building, what I'm in this morning as we're preaching, but we also are the church. And so, in as much as I may wonder what church as it looks gathered in this space might look like going forward, I'm even more curious what we as the church look like going forward. And that's why I'm really looking forward this morning to spending time over these next six weeks in the book of 1 John. Let's pray this morning as we continue. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for this morning. I thank you for our time where we can gather as the church at home. I pray that as we enter into this new series, that over the course of these six weeks, you will speak to us. Holy Spirit, you will challenge us and encourage us and that we will experience you afresh. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time where we can gather to hear from you. And I pray that we do that. And I pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. I'm not sure how familiar you are with the content of 1 John, but it's a fairly simple book. It's not as deep as, say, Romans or Ephesians, or, or at least it doesn't appear to be. What I think is significant about the book of 1 John is that in its simplicity, there is great substance. These three themes of light and life and love capture much of what I think the church could and should look like going forward. And so I invite you to spend time these next six weeks to really immerse yourself in this book. 
I would encourage you to read it, to, to study it, and to live it. And so this morning, I invite us to ask the first question. My first point for us this morning is, why 1 John? Well, the book of 1 John, as I mentioned already, is a letter written with much simplicity, yet substance. And as we launch into our series this morning, I thought it might be helpful having a bit more of the context behind this letter that'll benefit us as we go. The authorship of this letter is most often attributed to the apostle John. This is John, son of Zebedee, an apostle of Jesus, and also the author of the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. But what's interesting is that unlike most New Testament letters, 1 John doesn't actually tell us who the author is. The earliest indications of agreement that John was the author comes from some of the early church fathers, Irenaeus and Clement of Alexandria, Origen. Each of these men identified John as the letter's author. The style of this letter is very similar to that of the Gospel of John, which is why most scholars feel that John wrote this letter. First John is known as a, as a circular letter. This means that it was probably sent from Ephesus to the congregations in Asia Minor, which for us is our modern-day Turkey. These were congregations and regions under John's special care towards the end of the century. This is different than the Pauline epistles, those letters that were written by Paul. Those letters were written to specific churches or specific regions addressing specific issues. It's also believed that John lived to be quite aged, according to many early church fathers. And so these letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, were likely the last parts of the Bible, as we know it and have it, to be written. John likely wrote these letters somewhere around the time of 85 to 95 AD. And so I want us to look at as well the purpose this morning. And over the next few weeks, we'll uncover more and more of the purposes and themes behind this letter. But even taking a quick glance at 1 John, we see two major themes emerge. The first one is that John wrote this letter in order to expose false teachers. And the second one is that he wrote this letter to give believers assurance of salvation. He says in 1 John 1.4 that if he is successful in doing this, that it would bring him great joy. So let's look more closely this morning at chapter 1 in 1 John and, and break it down into two main points as we go. So my second point this morning for us is this, beginning in verse 1, looking at the word of life. I encourage you, if you've got your Bibles with you this morning or you're reading from your phone, to open up those Bibles to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, and let's read together, and the words as well will be on the screen. Beginning in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. I'm pretty sure if John was trying to submit this letter to his high school English teacher, he'd probably receive a failing grade. 
It's clunky, it's cluttered, and it's the epitome of a run-on sentence. Let me read it one more time and you'll get my point. Beginning in verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. But why John does this is for a very good reason. You see, for John, John has a very high Christology. How he, how he sees Jesus or, or the degree of importance that John has for Jesus. What John wants to ensure is that the foundation is laid for the centrality of Christ in this letter. For John, everything is about Jesus. Commentary writers infer from all of this that for John, his thesis statement that comes through all of this would be what someone truly believes about Jesus will be made manifest in their life. And I think that's why for chapter one, there are just two key points that John is seeking to establish here before he goes on for the rest of his letter. The first point is this. Followers of Jesus must hold to a sound orthodoxy. So what does that mean, perhaps you're asking? Well, orthodoxy is this compound word from two Greek words, orthos, meaning correct, and doxa, meaning way or, or opinion. And so orthodoxy is essentially the correct way or a correct belief. So John is saying that if you follow Jesus, there must be this correct belief. Because as I mentioned in the opening of this message, John is battling false teachers. And that's one of the main reasons why he's writing this letter. It's been said that the only way to know if a line is truly straight is to hold it up to one that is crooked or bent. As followers of Jesus, we hold to the truth of Scripture. That's our straight line. And when we see the warped and bent beliefs of false teachers, we understand why the Scriptures are true. The second point John is establishing here is, is that followers of Jesus must hold on to a sound orthopraxy. And so orthopraxy, again, is this compound word from two Greek words, orthos, meaning correct, as we've looked at already, and praxis, meaning action. And so orthopraxy is correct action. John wants to make sure that his audience, and us as well for that matter, are aware that following Christ is not purely about intellectual assent, meaning it's not all about who knows the most. I mean, we can't dismiss that it's a good thing for us as followers of Jesus to grow in knowledge, but that this knowledge also must be reflected in the way that we live our life. James 1.22 reminds us of this. It says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So to profess belief in Christ, but not act it out in our lives, is essentially the definition of what it means to be a hypocrite. Uh, one of the first books I remember reading, or one of the most first authors I remember reading uh, when I became a Christian was this man named Brennan Manning. And one of Brennan's famous quotes is this. He said, 
the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Now, if I'm honest with you this morning, the first place I think I actually heard that quote was in a DC Talk song. So if you watch and listen to DC Talk, then you get what age I am. The first point that that followers of Jesus must hold on to a sound orthodoxy, John addresses in these opening verses. And then the latter that followers of Jesus must hold on to a sound orthopraxy, he speaks of in the second half of this chapter. We also need to recognize from our text this morning that first John is anchored in the Gospels. It's important to see that John here anchors this letter back in his Gospel that he wrote as well. I want you to listen to the first few verses of the Gospel of John, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John is committed here to bringing forward these similar themes of of light and word and life and this idea of with or this, this sense of presence. Each of these themes is equally presented in John's gospel and here in John's letter. Why? Well, because if we don't, Because if we don't know about Christ and believe the correct things about him, who he was, who he is, well, then how on earth are we ever going to live this out? You see, if Christ has no impact on our hearts and on our minds, then how will he ever have an impact in our lives? It's why for John, he refers to Christ as the life We pick it up again in verse 2. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. You see, what I think John is getting at here is this understanding that Christ makes life worth living. One of my wife Charity's favorite hymns is this hymn by the Gaithers titled Because He Lives. Perhaps you know it yourself. And the chorus line of that hymn goes something like this. I'm not going to sing it, but let me read it for us this morning. It says, and because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone because I know he holds the future. And life is worth the living because he lives. We live this life because Christ lives, because Christ Jesus is alive. For John, his desire here is fellowship, this Greek word koinonia, that Christian community is partnership in experience. It's this common living of people who have shared experience with Jesus Christ. 
But fellowship isn't just horizontal. It's also vertical. John makes it clear that we also have this koinonia with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's that vertical component. A lot of this theme is again picked up in John's Gospel in chapter 15, where John again speaks to this life of abiding, this imagery of the vine and the branches and what it means to be in community, to abide with And this takes us to our second major point from this first chapter. Whereas in the first part of our message, John helps us understand the word of life. Here now we begin to understand in verse 5 to 10, the way of life. Let's read together again. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. We read again this morning in our text that this word comes up again of, of walk. It's the Greek word parepateo and and the Christian life is commonly referred to in the scriptures as a walk. I mean, just last Sunday, Dale shared more about this with us as he brought our series in Galatians to a close. As he mentioned last week, this term walk appears 47 times in the New Testament letters. And where our English translations have translated it as live or, or behave, this word parepateo here in our text in 1 John is the same as Dale mentioned that appears in Colossians 1.10. So, as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians, instructed Christians there to, to walk by the Spirit. And here in our text this morning, John does similarly. In verse 7 we read, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Essentially, what he's saying is this. In verse 7, when he says, walk in the light, he is saying, this is discipleship. This imagery is so fitting for describing the, the Christian life because we know that the very beginning of our journey of following Christ began with a step of faith, with a step of faith, as we put our trust in Christ as Savior and Lord. And our walk of faith continues because walking signifies progress. You'd likely get some silly looks if you said you were setting out on a walk and all you did was literally just proceed to walk in circles. Probably someone at that point might bring you a long sleeve jacket where you could simply hug yourself for a prolonged period of time. You see, for us as Christians, we're called to advance in life, to grow up spiritually as we grow up physically. 
It's why when we talk about discipleship here at Westview, we use that language of what it means to grow up biologically. These five stages of infant and child and young adults and adults and parent, because we understand that each stage there are expectations that are placed upon us and that we place upon ourselves. But no one ever expects an infant to remain an infant. No, he or she will grow up into a child, to a young adult and an adult and so on. And so helping his audience and us for that matter as well to, to better understand our life of faith through the image of a walk, John now turns to address the elephant in the room. Sin. And so he writes in verses 8 through 10, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. Story goes, one day an angry church member said to her pastor, why do you keep preaching to us Christians about sin? After all, sin in the life of a Christian is different than sin in the life of an unsaved person. Yes, you're right, the pastor said. It's different. It's much worse. You see, John's intent in this letter is that this subject is addressed first and foremost before he goes any further. What Christ desires of us is to live in fellowship with one another. And in order to live in fellowship with one another, we need to confess our sin. Look what it says again in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I don't know about you, but maybe you were raised to, to see God more as this malicious dictator who, who stood ready to punish you upon any sort of wrongdoing. Maybe you were raised only to understand the wrath of God, but not his long-suffering love. Or maybe we've just become so comfortable with our sin that we no longer see it as sin. I don't know if you remember the, the Febreze fabric spray commercials that came out a little while ago. There was this tagline in all of those commercials that said, you've gone nose blind. Meaning you can't smell the, the fragrance and the aroma and the pungency of a teenage boy's room with laundry piling up and rotting in the corner. You've just simply gone nose blind. And I think this can happen to us. We simply go nose blind to sin. We don't notice it anymore because we're so immersed in it. For some of us, we've simply justified and rationalized it into nothingness. And John indicates here in our text that Christians essentially do one of three things when it comes to their sin. The first one is that we lie to others about it. In 1 John 1, 6, we read, If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. 
The second thing John says that we do with our sin is that we lie to ourselves about it. In verse 8, we pick up, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And eventually, the third point that John wants to make here is in verse 10, where we read, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. What this all results in inevitably, I think, is loss. Loss of of genuine fellowship with each other. A loss of the kind of relationships, I think, that God, our creator, created us for. You see, the sentence of sin is always separation. Let me say that again. The sentence of sin is always separation. What sin does better than anything else is it separates us from God. It it drives a wedge into our lives between us and God, and it inhibits us from living life to the fullest. This verse that John gives in his gospel in John 10.10, that we were created for life and life to the fullest. The best thing we can live in sin is, is just really a counterfeit life. It's not really the real thing. It's a cheap imitation at best, my friends. But genuine repentance restores our relationship. Uh, Again, genuine repentance restores our relationship. Just like our text reminds us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So where do we go from here this morning, church? Well, I think there's two takeaways that we can take away from our text, I guess. The first is this. We can continue to walk in darkness. Stumbling around in our slavery to sin, trying to find significance and purpose from our own selves. Always feeling that there's this this emptiness inside of us that... Nothing seems to fail, no matter how hard we try. Or, or we can walk in the light. Where we can live as freely forgiven people. Where we can experience fellowship and, and belonging and, and connection and purpose. Where we can recognize that, that this emptiness inside of us can only ever be filled by Jesus that he is more than enough. Johnny Cash sung this song titled 1 Corinthians 15:55 and it was recorded just a few months before his death in uh, 2003. I want to read a few of the lyrics for us this morning that I think again helps to capture our scriptures. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? Oh, life, you are a shining path, and hope springs eternal just over the rise when I see my Redeemer beckoning me. Just let me set sail into your harbor of lights and there and forever to cast out my night. Give me my task and let me do it right and do it with all of my might. Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory? 
O life, you are a shining path, and hope springs eternal just over the rise when I see my Redeemer beckoning me. Light or, or darkness? What will be our reality, church? I don't know if you heard the news this week, but uh, the famous Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias went home this week to be with Jesus after a brief battle with cancer. It's a huge loss to the Christian community, losing a man who loved others so much and loved so much to tell others about Jesus. I don't know if you watch many of his presentations I have, and, and Ravi would often say during his presentations, and let me quote it for you this morning, the foundation on which you build your life is the only thing that will stand when the storms of life ultimately come, and they will come. It's not a question of if, but when. And for the Apostle John, what was at the core of why he wrote this letter was that his hearers would not just know about Jesus, but truly know Jesus and follow Jesus and serve Jesus and love Jesus to experience fellowship, to experience vibrant Christian community with one another. Because again, for John, Christ was central. It was all about Jesus and this vibrant Christian community, I think, is, is the natural outgrowth of people who genuinely live in God's presence. Who, who live in the light as he is in the light. Let me pray for us, church, this morning. Jesus, I do pray that we would walk in the light as you are in the light that we would not just know you, but follow you, serve you, worship you, honor you, glorify you. That just like for John, it was all about you, Jesus. And I pray that that will be said of us, that for, for us, we are all about you, Jesus. And I pray that that would be made manifest in our lives today that we would repent of the sin, that we would confess the sin that is holding us back, that is driving that wedge between us and you, Jesus, and that we would acknowledge you as Lord and Savior, that we would forsake all others and follow you, knowing that only you will truly satisfy us, Jesus. Nothing else can even come close. It's a substitute. It's a counterfeit at best. That life is all about you, Jesus, about following you, all the days of our lives. That's what you call us to as your disciples, to follow you and honor you and obey you and walk in the light. I pray that that would be the desire of our hearts, not just this morning, not just this week, but for all of our lives. And we pray this in your powerful name, Jesus. Amen.